to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm your host, Janine Strong, and today I'm having an inspiring conversation with Genpo Roshi, just another ordinary person leading a very extraordinary life. Dennis Paul Merzel, also known as Genpo Roshi, is a Zen teacher and priest in both the Soto and Rinsei schools of Zen Buddhism. He's also the abbot of Ken... Oh, I need to pronounce this properly. Abbot of Kanzian. That's correct. Oh, Kanzian. good for uh-huh. me. Inc. since 1988. And creator of the Big Mind Process in 1999. Since his initial awakening in 1971, his purpose and his passion have remained the same. To assist others to realize their true nature and to continuously deepen his own practice as well as assisting others in carefully reflecting on this life and clarifying the way. Hi, Gampo Roshi. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Janine. It's very <laughs> nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I really, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time and and uh, we won't get into the details, but we, we reconnected recently and I uh, asked you if you'd be on my podcast and you said yes and I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to do this. And thank you again. Oh, well, let's, um, you know, I'd like, I always like to start with people's stories, how they, their path, their journey, how they, how they came to be where they are today. So I'll just let you take it away. And then you can talk about Big Mind, Big Heart, uh, which is uh, your, your process, the, your technology that you use with people to help them transform and awaken. And um, I'm really excited about learning all of this. Well, thank you. Yeah, so I was born Dennis Paul Merzel, as you mentioned, and I was born in Brooklyn, New York. But before I was a year old, my parents moved out to Los Angeles, and uh, I was raised in Southern California. So in 1971, I had been, uh, since I was 15, almost 16, uh, a, a lifeguard at Huntington Beach in Long Beach, California. And I started teaching school when I was 22. Um, so at 26, I was out in the desert. I was having some trouble in my life. I was in a relationship. I'd already been married to a high school sweetheart, and that lasted a number of years. And then by 26, I was already divorced and in a new relationship. And I was having similar difficulties, feeling trapped, confined, uh, all those things that for me personally uh, give me I have a very difficult time with, I I kind of seek freedom and liberation. Mm -hmm. So I I went out to the desert to get some space from the relationship. And I went out with a couple of friends, one from high school and his girlfriend. And uh, out there in the desert, they went off hiking uh, together. And I decided to go climb a mountain and uh, sit on top of the mountain. And I was sitting there contemplating my life and how could I have messed it up so greatly at the age of 26. Um, I had already been divorced, as I said. Uh, I was having a difficult time and I'm wondering how could I mess up my life so much at such an early age. And I was sitting there in a kind of meditation. I never meditated before. And I was contemplating this, and all of a sudden, what struck me was the question, where is home? And Mm -hmm. I don't know where that question came from. It might have been years in previous lifetimes 
of searching for that answer. But somehow that question just hit me, where is home? And I was looking out from this mountain peak at my VW camper, which I had parked some miles away. I could see it. And I was thinking, well, that's home, at least for the next few days. And then I realized, well, no, home is really back in Long Beach, California, where I was living. And then all of a sudden, it struck me, it was an opening where I became one with the whole cosmos. And the realization was, of course, I'm always home. There's no place but here and now. So I'm always right here, right now. And it's always me. And it's this. And I'm always home. And that turned my life around 180 degrees. It was as if I had been moving in a direction like a speeding locomotive, <laughs> like a bullet train, mm. uh, towards success, towards all these things. Uh, you could say success, happiness, name, title, position, all those. I had already had a master's degree. Uh, I was already working my way up the ladder of what I was doing. And uh, I still had a lifeguarding job. I was working towards the Olympics. And everything was going my way. I was in water polo and, and we were, yeah, we were national champions several years running, three years out of four. And I was on the team that did make the Olympics, but I had to quit in 67. But this was 66, uh, 71. And so I, I'd been very successful, a lot of things and moving in that direction. And all of a sudden I realized that this is not fulfilling. This is not satisfying. Just having name and position and fame and security. And I realized that what was really important was knowing who I am and what this life is about. So it became an introspective moment where my light got turned inward, kind of without my choosing it in a way. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something I willed, right. but it happened. It, I just got turned inward. And the self got illuminated. And the self, as we know, is really just a contraction of who we are out of the fear of separation. That separation just dissolved. And there was no me and other. There was only other or only me. And we were one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so all things were no other than me. And I was no other than all things. And so the tree was me, and the clouds were me, and the sky was me, and the mountains were me, and the desert was me. Or you could say there was no me, and it was just mountains, just desert, just trees. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there, was, there was no distinction. And that was so profound. It was a huge, tremendous awakening. And I saw myself as the cosmos, as later I realized as Buddha, as the awakened one, as all this. Uh, I didn't have those names. It just, I saw myself as one with all, mm -hmm. one with the whole. Mm -hmm. So instead of, like for most of us, we know this intellectually, but right. we haven't had that experience in our body yet. Correct. And so it sounds like that's when you had that experience. Exactly. But I didn't know this intellectually. I was coming in as kind of uh, a, a newbie, you know, I mm -hmm. had no no spiritual background. I was born Jewish, but we were never raised Jewish. So I never had a Jewish uh, religious background, although 
I come from a long line on both my mother and father's side of rabbis and rabbis, mm. teachers of rabbis and rabbis themselves. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Zalman Schechner, Rabbi Zalman Schechner, who is very mm -hmm. famous, passed mm -hmm. away a number of years, lives in Boulder. His wife, I mean, used to live in Boulder. His wife still does. You know, she's a good friend. And he was, his first spiritual teacher was my grandfather's brother back in Europe. <laughs> in, back in, yeah, back in Poland, actually. Uh, I believe. No, maybe it was Antwerp in uh, Belgium. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said he gave his spiritual life birth, my grandfather's brother. And I've been to that temple before and uh, many times, and it was started by my grandfather's brother. So I come from a long line of rabbis and rabbis. My grandfather was a rabbi. My mother's father was a rabbi. And I had no spiritual upbringing. So that moment was an awakening and probably, probably because it's in my DNA and also karmically uh, because I must have done this over past lives. You know? mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, in that moment I sat down, I had this profound awakening and it transformed my life. I mean, it's never been the same. That was February of, of 1971, you know. Mm -hmm. And as you read in, my, in the introduction, from that moment on, what became most important was helping others awaken to this profound experience of one's true nature and also continue to clarify and deepen my own because I knew that my ego was grasping onto it and holding onto it as a new identity. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's been a lot of work to kind of let go of my identifying as the awakened one as a Buddha, you know, as uh, the whole, and also to be able to appreciate. I knew everybody was, but not everybody realized it. Right. So that became what I wanted to do is help people realize it. But I also, uh, over that time, uh, got more in touch once again with Dennis, because right after that experience, it was it was so profound for me. I changed my name to Sebastian. <laughs> just just because I bought a, an army shirt, I, I took off and just lived alone in the mountains for a year. And I bought an army shirt that had the name Sebastian. It was easier to change my name when I, I introduced myself to people than to change my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so I became known as Sebastian. And then that was 71 too. And then in 72, I went to see Maizumi Roshi. That was in March of 72. So I stayed a year in the mountains and I met him in 73. He gave me the name Genpo and Genpo is a Buddhist Dharma name. Mm -hmm. And it means Gen. He actually gave me the full name Soten Genpo. So Gen means esoteric and Po means Dharma, which mm -hmm. is teachings or reality or truth. Mm -hmm. OK, and then So means patriarch or ancestor, and ten means heaven. So it's the patriarch of the heavens, esoteric dharma. Mm -hmm. So he gave me this big name, which is supposed to grow into, I'm still growing <laughs> into it. I mean, it's a huge name, uh -huh. heavenly patriarch of the esoteric dharma, you know? Wow, yeah. But it is, you can see, I can see at least, that it is starting to really manifest as my name. Mm-hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So that's the name. And then the title then in 1980, I became sensei, which means a Dharma 
successor of, of the lineage, a lineage holder, all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha, which is 2,500 years. So I became the 81st. I and all those who were my teacher successors, there were 12 of us, all became the 81st patriarch in the lineage. And then my successors are the 82nd. So at that point, I became known as Gempo Sensei, Sensei meaning teacher. Mm -hmm. And then in 1996, my older Dharma brother, my teacher, passed away in 95. And his intention was to give my Dharma brother, whose name was Tetsugen Glassman, but now he's called Bernie Glassman Roshi, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Inca in 1995, and... uh, me in 1996. So that happened, although my teacher died before actually handing him the paper, but the document was made out. It's a poem, which mm-hmm. gave him what we call Inca, final seal of approval. So he became a Roshi. And the following year, just a year later, he gave it to me and I became a Roshi. And so Gempo Roshi, Roshi is a title and Gempo is a name. So uh, okay. that, that kind of explains that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I've heard and people so, say Gempo, call you Gempo, and I've heard people call you Roshi. Both, and when I wrote you, I said, okay, both are correct. Great. Okay. I guess both I wanted are correct. To. But Gempo is more of a common name. We never called my teacher Taizan, Maizumi Roshi. We always called him Roshi or Maizumi Roshi or Taizan Roshi. We never call him just by the first name. In Japanese, it's considered a little impolite and more familiar. So some people call me Genpo because that's how they know me. But my students usually call me Roshi and my family call me D or Dennis. <laughs> That's funny. Now I would it's like very to confusing. yes, I would like to back up just a bit because I caught something and which probably most people wouldn't catch, but I caught it because um, I have actually been living with someone who has had the same experience, and I know it's something that doesn't happen to people very often. Correct. And he has been struggling with just you know sticking with the day to day drama. And, you know, wanting to go off and live in a cabin. (laughs) Um, And so, because you said you, 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 I did, you did. Yeah. So if if you could, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Because I know, I know it's been quite a struggle for Stephen. And um, how old is Stephen? He's 48. Okay. And Yeah. um, yeah, it's, you know, to, to, it's just it's just been quite it's happened almost two years ago to him okay. and he it didn't he struggle. didn't know he didn't know what was going on either it took him uh months to figure out what had happened and he just knew something had changed and something was different um but yeah it's a struggle to yeah to to, to continue to uh, be a human <laughs> and not just a being well, that's right no that's uh, absolutely said perfectly so uh, what happens is it is very, very off-putting in a way. And how we name it is very important. Mm-hmm. Like when I went to see my mother right after this happened, maybe a week or two later, she said, Dennis, you finally did it. You've gone insane. <laughs> oh, dear. And she was also right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could say I had an awakening, but... To some people, it looked like insanity, and it is insanity in that 
we are very much in a world which we call sane. But if you ask anybody to speak about what is sanity, nobody can answer it, mm -hmm. you know. But it actually is true that our world is pretty insane, the yes. way we have divided it up mm -hmm. and the way we live in fear and paranoia all the time. And we're jealousy and greed and envy and hatred and all those things that come out of this divisiveness, this separation of self and other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What going insane, at least at that point, and it does depend on what you're doing at the time and how you label it, because I was in meditation when it happened. Mm -hmm. I was firm in my sitting posture. You know, I mm -hmm. wasn't, and nobody locked me up and filled me through full of Thorazine, you know, <laughs> uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. and my friend, when I met him that evening, he had been a Zen practitioner, studier of Zen, uh, not practitioner, but studier of Zen. He was a PhD in psychotherapy, and he became a union analyst. And he said, you had a Zen experience. So that really helped me because instead of saying, God, I've just gone insane, mm -hmm. I said, oh, I've gone enlightened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a mm -hmm. Zen experience. Mm -hmm. And so when my mother said, well, you're insane, and other people said you're insane, I said, well, you could look at it that way. I say I've gone sane. Uh, and I would, I would agree. I think the plan, I mean, it, I find it very interesting. I walk around, I swear I'm from somewhere else. I am not from here because I walk around and I go, this is crazy. I don't understand how people think, how they how they live, how they interact, how they can be abusive, how I just, it just seems so crazy to me. <laughs> it is, it is. But that's our insanity. So what I say is we have it backwards. Now, Buddha himself 2,500 years ago said, we have it backwards. That what he used the word delusion and enlightenment because obviously sane and insane didn't come around till Freud and until the Western, you know, psychology, which was over 2000 years later. So what he said is we're deluded, you could say we're insane, and we go enlightened, or we go sane. And really, in all the years, I really looked at this and played with this, using the big mind and other things. And I really feel it's true, that where we're living our life from, or where we're coming from, is insanity, as well as deluded and ignorant. And what we're flipping into, the other side, is a reality of sanity, where we treat people with love and compassion, where our life is based on wisdom and compassion, not on greed, anger, and hatred. What a concept. Say, yeah. <laughs> so, you know... I would say, have your friend call me. I, I, I would, that's what I was I would, thinking. Yeah, thank I would you. love to speak with him. You know, this was almost 50 years ago or whatever, 47 years ago. So I've been at it a long time, mm -hmm. and I'd be more than happy to help them uh, look at this and thank work you. with it. Because you do, when I came back, I left my career. I quit my job. I quit my relationship. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I quit my life. I gave away or sold everything I had. If I couldn't sell it, I gave it away. And I left in a backpack with a sleeping bag and spent a year before I got to, I moved into the Zen Center a year, a few months later. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Thank you. I'm, gl- I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we talked about that because I, sure. I think it's, you know, it, it's one thing to just have a, a little bit of an idea, but to really have someone describe it and because I don't, do you have any sense of what percentage of the population this happens to? It, it doesn't seem like it's very it's many. Not, no, no, yeah. it's rare. Mm-hmm. It's rare. I mean, I've been teaching now since 73. And I've been a teacher since 79. And I've run into a few cases where it's profound opening, not that many. So, yeah, we're talking about percentage, just probably less than 1% mm-hmm. of the population, maybe at the most couple percent, but it's very rare. Uh, and, you know, it is confusing because if you go to most Psychotherapists, I'm not talking about really trained in the transcendent voices or transpersonal voices, but if you go to most, they'll say you're crazy mm-hmm. because you, you start talking about a whole different reality where there is no distinction between self and other, between right and wrong, good and bad. Now, of course, that's just the beginning. Right. And I, I was very fortunate and I, I guess you could say very good karma. But by 72, March of 72, so just a little over a year later, I realized while I was living in my cabin alone that I needed a teacher. I had a profound experience that day that I was the Buddha. And Mm -hmm. so it it was a little clearer than what happened in 71 where I became one with the cosmos and had awakening. Mm-hmm. Here it was, I was the Buddha and that just seemed absurd <laughs> to my rational mind, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I, I knew, oh my God, I need a teacher who is a living Buddha with a lineage. Does, do they even exist? Mm-hmm. And two days later, I think it was two days. It might have been the same day or three days. A gentleman comes up in his 60s or 70s to my cabin. I had a little group of about 20 people, and I was teaching them all to meditate. So mm-hmm. I was 26, 27 years old, kind of an infant. <laughs> and uh, I was teaching people to meditate. I didn't try to teach Dharma, but I just taught them how to sit, and we sat together for an hour. And he came up, and he said, you know, I think you're absolutely ripe for meeting a teacher, that whatever has happened to you is profound, but you're at a crossroads, a tipping point, and you need a teacher. And I said, it's so funny you say that, but just the other day, I realized I need a teacher. <laughs> now, before that, I wasn't open to a teacher. Right, right. I was pretty stuck in my, <laughs> I'm the Buddha, I'm God, I'm, you know, I'm awakened, and I wasn't really ready to open myself up to a teacher or a lineage or anything. But when he came, I was absolutely ripe for mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And within three days, I think that was Monday or Tuesday, on Friday I met Mizumi Roshi, Corey Roshi, and Bernie Roshi. I met three people, that two were teachers already, and Bernie became a teacher. And I guess All you're a good day. you're a good example of uh, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> exactly, but I had to make some effort. Right, I caught a, right. I caught a flat car train oh. uh, from San Luis Obispo down to L.A. to go to. I mean, I had to make some effort mm-hmm. and get myself 
to a retreat in LA. This was San Luis Obispo. I was at Santa Margarita back in the mountains. Um, so I had to make some effort, but the teacher appeared. He drove up and appeared at my cabin. He wasn't a teacher, but he'd been doing this 20 years, mm-hmm. you know? So he was, a. a I love the guy and mm-hmm. I know he's passed away since then, but, mm. uh, he just opened my, me up to the whole tradition and lineage, which then I, you know, I became, uh, an integral part of. Mm-hmm. So, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me from the, uh, the experience that I'm having with my husband, um, is that, this isn't something you can like make happen. It, it no, just happens. Can't. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't force it. I mean, the big mind process, if I may say, oh, great is, segue. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the closest thing we have as a skillful means. We call it upaya, mm-hmm. a skillful means to trick the mind. And upaya also means to trick the mind. To wake up. Mm-hmm. It's probably the closest thing when it's done, particularly in person. It, I've had people tell me, watching the YouTube or listening to that first tape that Ken Wilber did of me in, I, in 2003, people calling me and saying, wow, I was listening to you on my earbuds and I had an awakening. You know, mm-hmm. So people have that. But your husband is absolutely right. You can't force it. It's like we can take the horse to water or the dog. My dog is just as stubborn as any horse. You can bring her to water, put her face in it, but she will not drink it unless she wants to. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. My dog's the Perfect same. dog for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we can bring someone to the precipice, but we really can't push them off. They have to fall. And it's a falling into this experience because you can't even leap. Because what's doing the leaping is still the ego or pride, the self. And the self can't, can't pick itself up by its own bootstraps. Mm-hmm. The self can't abandon itself. We have to separate from the self. And that's where Big Mind is actually, I must say, brilliant. Uh, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> if I don't. Because it is. Uh, it is brilliant. Because what happens is... The moment we take another voice, and what I've discovered over the past eight, 19 years since I discovered the big mind, which was 99, is I can do it with any voice. Mm-hmm. Like if I ask to speak to, let's say, the awakened one, mm-hmm. and you say to me, okay, I am the awakened one, and I say, okay, well, you're not yet awakened yet. You're the awakened one, but you haven't awakened the self, you know, hasn't awakened to your presence yet. Okay, I agree with that, but I'm the awakened one. And then we take that to ownership. In other words, we say, okay, so how do you come out as the awakened one that hasn't been awakened yet? Well, I come out as the self. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I come out, you know, with wanting things for myself, with my own greed, my own anger, my own problems, my own difficulties, with my good habits and my bad habits, my strong points and my weak points, my likes and my dislikes. You know, That's how I come out. And we say, well, what if now the self was to empower you as the awakened one to be awakened to? In other words, that the self awakens to your presence. And you say, okay, well, that sounds good. Okay, well, let's do that. So let me speak to the awakened one, completely awakened and empowered. 
Mm. And then you go, okay, okay, I am the awakened one. And you can just do that with me right now. Mm-hmm. I am the awakened one, completely empowered and awakened as the awakened one. And then you just sit there for a moment and you see what's happened. Oh, my God. That's weird. I'm getting, my, my whole body's kind of tingling. <laughs> of course. It happens like that. Wow. That, that's the power of this. Uh-huh. And then, then I just have people sit in that. Okay, so I'm the awakened one. There's no doubt about that because that's who you asked to speak to. The self is over there, and maybe he's a little concerned about what's going on here, but he's given me permission to be empowered. Mm-hmm. He himself has given the permission for me to be awakened to and empowered and to be fully owned and embodied. So this body that I'm touching right now is the body of the awakened one, the body of the Buddha. Oh my God, I am the Buddha. I am the awakened one. I'm not the self. The self is just something I created to give me ability to make distinctions such as this and that, good and bad, self and other. But I am actually the awakened one, and I have no limits, no boundaries. I'm boundless, limitless, selfless, colorless. And yet I appear as this skin color. I manifest as five foot eleven and a half, <laughs> 190 pounds, right? But I'm formless. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. And then you, you own that. You can probably experience it to some extent just as we were talking. I'm feeling, I, I'm hoping I can continue because I'm feeling kind of weird right now. <laughs> exactly. Because it takes you out of yourself. Uh-huh. So then from here, we look over at the self and we can see the self very clearly now because I'm not the self. I'm the awakened one. And I look over here and I see wow, I have a lot of loving compassion for this guy because he's struggling just to make ends meet, to kind of be a nicer person, to be a a kinder, more compassionate guy. And yet he's screwing up all the time. He's constantly (laughs) making mistakes. He's constantly coming back to his old habitual patterns. You know, he's constantly upset when people call him names or, or, you know, kind of uh, project on him. You know, all this stuff, Mm -hmm. I really feel love and compassion for this poor, pathetic guy called Dennis, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because he's trying so hard. And we can all do that. We look at, you know, Janine, we can see, oh, my God, she's really working hard at being a good person and being more loving and compassionate, right? Mm -hmm. And you have empathy Mm -hmm. and sympathy for her. You have compassion. And then we flip it. We say, okay, well, now let me speak to that self, also not fully awakened yet. And so, okay, now I'm no longer the awakened one. I'm the self. But I haven't awakened yet either. I'm still quite ignorant and deluded. And I'm quite contracted. And I live, my life is based a lot, I don't like to, I don't like to see this or acknowledge this, but it's based a lot on fear and jealousy and envy, a lot on greed, you know, and trying to secure my name and my position and my role in this world, mm-hmm. naming who I am and finding out what this is all about and why am I here. And those are some of the more positive things. But, you know, I do get angry so easily. I get upset. 
I, I want things my way. I want to be right. Oh my God, I, I'm not you, very awakened at all. Are you in my all. mind? <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then we say, okay, well, how about asking for you to be acknowledged and awakened by the Buddha? Okay, that sounds good. So now I'd like to speak to the self fully awakened and embodied fully empowered to be the self. Oh my God, I'm the self, but now I'm in the awakened self. I'm aware, oh my God, I'm aware of how greedy I am. I'm aware, oh my God, I'm aware of how I easily get angry. Angry. So it's not that different than before, except now I'm owning it. I'm owning my greed, I'm owning my confusion. Oh my God, I am confused. Oh my God, I'm deluded. I'm ignorant. Oh my God, if I own that I'm ignorant and deluded, if I can say, wow, I am totally deluded and ignorant, <sighs> what a relief. <laughs> can you feel that? Mm -hmm. If you can own, I'm completely deluded and ignorant. Oh my God, I don't have to pretend to be anything but deluded and ignorant. I don't have to put on a facade and, and pretend that I'm not stupid and deluded and ignorant. I am completely stupid, completely deluded, completely ignorant, completely greedy. I'm, it doesn't make me more greedy. I'm just recognizing how greedy I am hmm. and how ignorant I am. So with that recognition comes awareness. So now I'm the aware self rather than the contracted self, which is in denial which is suppressed and in denial. Mm -hmm. Now I'm owning who I am. And I own all these things about myself that everybody else can see but me. <laughs> everybody how can how see. convenient. Isn't it? Like, God, I'm a narcissist. I'm very narcissistic. You know, mm -hmm. I, I look at Trump and I say, oh, my God. God, I'm just like that. Mm -hmm. Only I, I manage not to Show it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I have all those qualities in me, you know, totally about me, totally narcissistic, totally. It's, it's all about me being right and me being the best and being superior. I got all those qualities. Oh, my God. So do we all, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then when we own that, we transcend it. Mm -hmm. So the ones we own a voice, we at that very moment of owner, owning it, we transcend it. So now I'm the self, but I'm no longer the, the contracted self. I'm now the awakened self, much more aware and much more present to who I am. So now if we make this into a triangle, we've got the Buddha over here at one corner of the triangle, okay. and we've got the awakened self, not the awakened one, the awakened self, mm -hmm. over in the other triangle. Now this is all very new. This is stuff I've just created in the last year. Uh, uh, or maybe two years. And it really clarifies a lot about Buddhism that hasn't been clear up to now about Buddhism, frankly. Mm -hmm. So on one corner, I'm the awakened one. And on the other corner, I'm the awakened self, the awakened ego. And I'm not going to change the ego as the Buddha or awakened one. I look over at the self and I say, you know, I just have love and compassion for this guy, for his struggles, 
for his confusion, for his continually falling back into habitual patterns and his karma that he's trying to work out, that he's trying to be a nice person, a loving person, a kinder person. He's trying not to do harm, but he's constantly hurting people unintentionally or even intentionally, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. I just have love, and I don't need him to be anything but the self. Now, mm -hmm. this is what's new. Not trying to change anything. Not trying to change anything. So I let Dennis be Dennis. Mm -hmm. And he's perfectly okay and lovable and acceptable to me as the Buddha, seeing Dennis as Dennis. Mm -hmm. And then I go, I switch voices. I say, okay, now Dennis or the self. And I look over at the Buddha and I have great reverence. I have uh, ability to bow to him for being such an enlightened being. I can make bows to him. I can offer incense to the Buddha. I can do all these things. And yet I know it's within me as well as outside of me. Mm -hmm. There's the Buddha statues, the Buddha lineage, the Buddha tradition. There are awakened Buddhas. And it's also within. So what's external is also internal, vice versa. And I can have this respect and love for the Buddha as the self. And then we go to the zenith or the apex of our triangle. So we just created mm -hmm. a triangle. And at the apex or the zenith is my new word for it. Because mm -hmm. I'm writing a book called Zenith. Ah, um, I like that. And from the zenith, I can say, wow, I embrace these two aspects within me. I have the self, the egocentric self, which can be matured over time with realizations and awakenings mm -hmm. and i have the buddha also with the potential of becoming a mature and very uh healthy buddha mm -hmm. a very awakened healthy buddha that has a lot of maturity and i can allow from the zenith i can allow the buddha be, to be the buddha and the self to be the self i don't need to bring them too close together because think of a tripod, mm -hmm. or uh, the tripod's not the best. Uh, think of two pillars of a temple. Okay. And if you bring those two pillars too close together, the Buddha and the self, all of a sudden the ceiling collapses because there's not enough space between the pillars. Mm. If you move the pillar, mm -hmm. yeah, if you move the pillars apart too far, your roof's going to crumble also mm -hmm. because there's too much space between them. So with just the right distance, but separate, mm -hmm. the Buddha as the Buddha, the self as the self, or the ego self as the ego self, and allowing each to be in its rightful place mm -hmm. for the self to operate on a daily basis and the Buddha to be there when needed, mm -hmm. giving guidance and wisdom. Then at the apex, I'm the aware self or the aware ego or the enlightened ego which has both the Buddha and the self uh, as aspects of itself. So I can actually look at these two. I don't like using this analogy because people think it's funny. <laughs> I can see both the awakened, uh, the self and the Buddha as my children. Mm -hmm. You see? But they're mm -hmm. aspects of me. Let's use that term. Mm -hmm. But they are like my children because... At the apex, it's my responsibility how much airtime I give Buddha, how much airtime I give the self. Mm. How much mm -hmm. do I depend on the self's wisdom 
And how much do I depend on the Buddha's wisdom? Because I know the Buddha has much greater wisdom than the self, but the self has some practical wisdom that the Buddha doesn't have. Like mm-hmm. you were talking about your husband. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of stuck in that limitless, boundless Buddha place. And it doesn't know so well how to make money. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't know how so well how to make plans. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know so well how to scheme and make things happen that it wants to happen because it sees those things as slightly beneath itself. Like when I first had my awakening in February of 71, I disowned every voice in me, every voice. That was like 5,000 voices I disowned in mm-hmm. one full swoop by mm-hmm. saying they're not, they're not enlightened. Mm-hmm. Greed is not enlightened. Mm-hmm. Competitiveness is not enlightened. So the competitor is not enlightened. Greed is not enlightened. The one who hates is not enlightened. All these things that I felt were no longer appropriate because now I am enlightened. They don't belong to me. Mm-hmm. So I disowned them. So mm-hmm. what did they do? They came back and bit me in the behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. because, because I thought I was past all that garbage. Only to spend the next 45 years reintroducing these aspects of the competitor, of greed, of anger, of fear, of hatred, of jealousy, and working day after day on owning and embodying these two in order to move beyond and not be run by fear, not be run by jealousy, not be run by uh, uh, competitiveness and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. This is, I- I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. I'm, I'm so thrilled that with what we're talking with, I, about, um, yeah, I- I'm having a hard <laughs> Having a hard time talking here because I, I, I'm perfectly. I, I'm in it. I'm perfect. in it while we're, you know, while you're talking about it. Um, wow. So, so how do people get an opportunity to do this? Well, if they go to bigmind.org, okay. they'll find our schedule on there, my schedule. It's all there. They can look at that and attend events. There's also, like you said, a lot of things by now on YouTube, some of it old and some of it good and some of it not so good anymore. You know, I find that I'm not happy with anything I did more than about five days ago. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh that's why I keep writing and rewriting a a book and redoing it because after I let it sit for a couple of weeks or months, I come back to it, I don't like it anymore. So it's the same thing with things that I videotape, but they're good. Mm-hmm. People tell me they get a lot out of them. So I may be more kind of uh, critical of myself at this point of how I was and how I was teaching because I keep evolving too, mm-hmm. along with the big mind process. So, But there's a lot on YouTube. Then We've got, we made... And this was because of Bill Harris. You mentioned Centerpoint and mm-hmm. Bill. Mm-hmm. You know, we made these tapes. It was at Bill's recommendation. You know, Bill's a monk of mine before he passed away. Right. I was with yes. him two days before he died. I was there all day Sunday, and then he passed away Tuesday morning. And I kind of gave him permission to pass on because he was really ill. He was never going to be the I same know. again. I was doing the same thing. I was actually holding his hand for the last four hours. Were you really? Yeah. Yes, I was. Oh, my God. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, my point is this, that uh, people could order these tapes, videos, a big volume. We practically give them away now. At that point, they were very expensive. But now we basically just charge postage and handling. And oh, we, wow. because it's, it's very, it's expensive to send them to Europe. But we uh, basically don't charge most often anything for them. And at the most, postage and handling. But anyways, they can get it by going to bigmind.org and ordering copies of the DVDs. And then the first one is no longer available on DVD, but we can make it available, but it's also online. They can have it so they can just download it online. And the rest are are hard copies of DVDs. And we've got a lot of them left because we printed way too many. (laughs) And yeah, it was a big mistake. But we have them and they're there for the public. And that's an excuse me, another good way to learn the process even before coming to any event. Mm-hmm. And some of my events are very inexpensive, and some of them are quite expensive. Nothing like the old days, but they're still expensive. But that's just because I have to <laughs> earn a living, right? Uh, you know, uh, and I don't do as many events just because I'm now 74 and I've slowed down a little bit mm-hmm. uh, than I used to do. But the point is that free things are are there for people to work with YouTube, the videotapes. Even on bigmind.org, there's some things that they can read and, and listen to, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it could look at the workshops and what works for them. Because if I do a large workup workshop for many people, it's cheaper. If I do one for a small number of people, it's more expensive. Sure. So people people can be choose their comfort level Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at that point. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you have so much that people can download and do on their own because I find that trying to get uh, people to take time off and spend money to go somewhere is just harder and harder. It It is. I'm also doing a, what is it called, a Zoom conference Mm -hmm. called, uh, it's not quite every month, uh, but it's basically like, I think, six consecutive months, like uh, on a Saturday or Sunday, I don't remember, mm-hmm. uh, six times in a row. And it's not that expensive. And that's on Zoom. So everybody's face is showing. And it's an hour and a half long. Nice. And uh, there's probably about 30 or, or so people, somewhere between 25 and 35 people on that call at a given time. And people can sign up for that too. So that's, that's also great. available. Yeah, that's great. So how, like, um, okay, so is there an e- uh, an email address or someplace where people can well, get on your mail list to find out when you're doing yeah, these things? Yeah, they can either write Mary Ellen Sloan. And that that's at Sloan's, S-L-O-A-N-S, at xmission.com. Okay. Or they can write Big Mind, uh, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they can uh, email. Let's see. Mary, Mary Ellen sent me, uh, she said Mary Ellen at bigmind.org. That's the other one. That's so what she So it's either sloansxmission.com or bigmind.org. Okay. That's right. Okay. Either of those work. And she can help in any way. She's my assistant. She's a lawyer. She was 
assistant district attorney for the Utah County for many years and retired to become my full-time assistant, <laughs> which I'm very, very fortunate about. Awesome. Because I, I couldn't manage without her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's available to help people in any way. Okay. Awesome. Wow. Oh, this has been a delight. Is there anything that you haven't uh, mentioned yeah. that you... Yes. Yeah, please. Yes. You, you mentioned to me, so I think it's a great idea. And that is to give away the online book I wrote mm-hmm. as a free as a free book. It's nice. only online. I never printed it, uh, and it's it's actually an interesting book. I loved writing it. <laughs> I can give you a little history about it. Sure. So uh, some people know him, Paul McKenney. He's very famous in Europe, but not as famous in America. But he uses a lot of the big mind work in his work. And he's been on TV a lot and so on. And he had a suggestion. He wanted me to write a book, much like uh, the Conversations with God mm-hmm. by, I, I think it's Neil. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I forget. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I- <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyways. Um, and, you know, I've been kind of a Buddhist for a long time. And before that, I was kind of agnostic. And so for me to write a book on God was a very strange request, but he really wanted me to do the voice of God. So I started to write a book, and I actually wrote it very quickly, I think in about 10 days. Uh, And it it didn't kind of work. So I took that book, and I changed it to a fiction book. Instead of me speaking as the voice of God, Mm -hmm. I changed it into a fiction. I called it The Fool Who Believed or Thought He Was God. (laughs) And it's a conversation that goes on in a mental institution between two twins. uh, uh, What do they call it? Uh, Identical twins? Identical. Identical twins. And they had been separated for some 30 years. And one twin had gotten enlightened when he was 26. And the other twin continued to be a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And the one that was a school, moved to Bar Harbor, Maine, only to find out that his twin brother was in a mental institution in Bangor, Maine, an hour and 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So he was shocked that his enlightened brother had been put into a mental institution. And mm-hmm. he started paying him visits once a week. Now, this is all fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And asking him questions, but he had to obey the one rule that the crazy brother had. Uh, and the crazy brother's rule was he couldn't deny that he was God. Mm-hmm. His identity was God. He would speak to him freely, but only as God. He was not anybody else that would be saying he was crazy if they thought he was anybody but God. So this conversation every week goes on about the sane brother asking the insane brother, who happens to be quite enlightened, all these questions that you would ask God. Mm -hmm. And the brother answering all these questions in the voice of God. And it's pretty profound, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And I love, I loved writing it, and I loved doing it in fiction. Uh, yeah, so that 
that would be great if people wanted to uh, get that. We could do that free. And I think they'd have to just go to bigmind.org. That's just bigmind, one word, dot org. And we'll get something done in the next few days uh, that we can do to uh, make that happen so they can just download it. Awesome. That would be great. Uh, yeah. Because this will, I will be uploading this in two weeks. Okay. So that'll be plenty of time to get that all uh, worked out for people. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I forgot that we're not live. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, we have time. Yeah, that's great. Now, I did have one other question about um, in your write up, I was noticing that professionals are using your your work in their work. And I was wondering how, um, you know, how how different uh, professions can utilize this in their work with people. Well, you know, you're so right. You know, uh, John Quigley uh, has used it. He's the CEO of a very large company and has been of, of other large companies, including one time Motorola. Mm -hmm. And he uses it. And then Hamdi Ulakaya, uh, the founder and head of Chobani Yogurt, who's a very close friend mm -hmm. also of mine, they're both actually advisors on the Big Mind board. Uh, he uses it a lot in his organization. Um, I've been working with both of these gentlemen, Hamdi, since 2010 or 11, and John since about the same time, uh, maybe a little earlier. Uh, and they use it, and then John Cummings used it with his skiers. He owns several, well, a number of ski resorts throughout the country. And... Um, Another another Sherry uh, Burns, she has a financial company, and we used to do work with them. So usually I come in and I, I do a workshop with them, and then for their leaders, and in fact, Hamdi was just asking me to do that again with their leaders, and um, where I teach them how to use the process and particularly in the leadership role, it empowers them uh, to be, frankly, better le leaders and also using uh, more, let's say, intuitive wisdom. Mm -hmm. Like Hamdi mm -hmm. is brilliant at that. I've watched Hamdi. We've traveled together where he's meeting with the head of Coca-Cola. He's meeting with the head of uh, um what's it, Starbucks and, mm -hmm. and all that. And he makes split decisions that are billion-dollar decisions in split seconds because he trusts his intuition so mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, and he says his secret is he can't care. Yeah, that's true. Loses, that's true. You just can't, you can't worry about that. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and from my perspective, it's about getting out of your mind and getting in and being in your heart. And, and exactly. that's, that's where the real true decisions should be made. That's right. And so, you know, and I've done some work with, of course, Bulletproof, Mm -hmm. uh, but not with, not with any of their their uh, CEOs or, or leaders, but with the whole group. Mm -hmm. I think it was a hundred and some people that time when I did. Of course, there were a couple of phone conferences, conferences, and mm -hmm. then uh, you know, there's been a few other uh, companies that I've worked with, and it does work really well. But I think the best thing is for people to get a hold of Mary Ellen and find out more what's possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, great. I'm, I'm glad you, 
you uh, explained that because I think uh, your to me your work is so profound. Um, I know that our listeners are going to get going to get a lot out of this conversation, and uh, it's it's meant a lot to me. So thank you so well, much. Well, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. So great. I will. Uh, I'll have. T- we'll have time to get. Uh, things together for people and I, I'm going to continue listening to your YouTube videos and I'll pick some out that I think are are particularly profound or or uh, right, interesting right. and I'll put links to those on the podcast website too. Right and you'll notice that at least on YouTube they say how many people have followed it and I think that's sometimes a good uh, sign that they become very popular Mm-hmm. And they they must be good. Mary Ellen could also tell you ones that are quite good. And okay. then definitely on the DVDs, there's some around competitor, uh, feminine power, mm-hmm. and em- empowering the feminine. I mean, there's there's a number of them that are very popular uh, voices that we've worked on. Right, because and I want to make it clear to the listeners, uh, we've focused on the awakened one in in this conversation, but there are hundreds of voices. Not thousands. just yeah, thousands <laughs> that that can be worked with. Um, why don't you just just mention a few just to give people an idea what what some of these voices might be? Well, uh, there's the one in power, the one that feels powerless. Uh, there's the apex of that. Uh, there's uh, the one who feels uh, greedy and always uh, somehow uh, unsatisfied. We call it the hungry ghost. It's never satiated, and it's opposite, the one that is satiated, that is happy and content mm-hmm. with what it has, and then the apex of that, where sometimes we are acting out of greed, and very often we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Jealousy is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, competitor is another one. Mm-hmm. Particularly, we have feminine competitor, and we have masculine competitor, and they're mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the feminine competitor is... It is very different than the masculine competitor. Not that anyone's wrong, but they're different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's the one who is no need to compete. Mm-hmm. Who feel. And then there's there's the ego, mm-hmm. and and it's opposite. Uh, there's fear. It's just huge in every voice uh, because there's always fear before we shift. There's always fear, mm-hmm. and I know that from my own experience. The moment before we make a fall or a shift into something more profound and limitless, there's always some fear that we're kind of falling into an abyss. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's why most of us don't have these experiences like your husband has had and others have had because of that fear. So we speak a lot to fear before we make the shift into a voice. That's another voice. You name it. I mean, I'm finding voices all the time. I say there are 10,000 voices plus all their opposites. So that right there is 20,000 voices. So hundreds is too limiting. And I've probably found thousands already. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I want to ask you about the controller. I remember okay. I remember that one. From, That's a big one. That's mm, a big one. Mm-hmm. So what what would be the uh, the opposite and the apex? Or, or what, what is the controller? Because, yeah, for some reason, okay. that seems important to me. It is. In fact, it's maybe the key voice. Uh, and it used to be the first voice I always did, and I got tired of it after 10 <laughs> years. So I don't do it anymore. But 
it's on the tapes. So if you think about it, if I'm the controller and I'm not owned, then I want to control everything. Mm. I, I'm like I'm like a control freak. I, I'm I'm freaking out if there's a thought of losing control or if I actually do lose control. So I would be scared to death to do something that would cause me to lose complete control. You know, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be physically or mentally, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be mm-hmm. afraid to do some kind of chemical that would cause me to lose control or to dive out of a plane without a parachute mm-hmm. because I'd be out of control, you know. So there's there's a lot of fear when that voice is not owned. If I'm owned as a controller and I take full responsibility for my decisions that I'm I all of a sudden become the master. Mm-hmm. And the master is a very different place because the master is guided by wisdom and compassion, whereas the controller is guided by fear and jealousy and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge difference in the same voice, even with a different name. So when the controller is owned in a body, all of a sudden it becomes the master or the CEO of the company rather than just a controller of the company. But we don't want to disown the controller because we need a controller. Mm -hmm. So we come back and we ask the controller for permission to speak to another voice. At some point, I skip that and I come back to the master because one has embodied the apex enough as a master to ask it to own uh, or acknowledge the voice rather than controller. But in the beginning, I used the controller because that was the most prevalent voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I'm glad I thought of that. I think that's yeah, important. That's... Yeah, great. <laughs> Let me add one more thing about okay. the controller that we learned. So the controller not only is there to try to control others, it also does try to control itself. And it also tries to control the situation that to in order to protect others from the self, it has to control the self to a degree where the self is not just acting freely and without restraint, Okay, you see. Mm-hmm. So that's an important point because in Zen we have these two aspects or voices. One who ties oneself without even a, a rope because it tries to obey rules and regulations all the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it ties, it binds itself up in knots, trying to be a good person, uh, you know, obey all the laws, obey all the rules, stay, you know, on the, you know, mm-hmm. on the right course. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a wonderful voice, but it gets out of control because it's too controlling. Right. It's, it's too restrictive. On the other side, when the controller is not there, the self just acts freely without any, uh, boundaries you know mm-hmm. it, it just acts the way it wants and we say well that's the way of the heretics that's not it either but at the apex we embody and come from a place as a master where we're not tying ourselves in a knot nor are we acting just out of our own needs and desires to be free we're mm-hmm. respectful we're compassionate we're loving at the same time we're not bound by a lot of rules and regulations right Binding ourselves up into knots. So there's a freedom in our way of presenting ourselves, and there's also a way of presenting ourselves that's very free. Mm -hmm. And let me name one more. Let me name one more. Sure. While I'm thinking of it. And that is to 
have great faith in our doubt and skepticism Hmm. to really trust that we need to question things. We need to question everything, what our reality is, who we are, what this life's about, that we need to have great faith in our great doubt and questioning. Hmm. And we need to have great doubt in our great faith. (laughs) Now, I know this is profound Hmm. hearing this because we don't usually think of this that way. We think I should have more and more faith or more and more doubt, but we barely ever see that it's important to have great faith in our doubt and great doubt in our great faith because we can get too carried away with great faith and then it becomes a kind of blind faith where we're not really questioning things and we're just followers mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we're not we're not really leaders because we're just following others because we have faith in someone or something or even in ourself because the self we shouldn't have great faith in the self either because it's a mess. Mm, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Great. So I just want to say yeah, that. But if no, you remember you. what you wanted to ask or say. Well, it, when you were talking about the controller, it reminded me of uh, a saying that Bill liked to to spout now and then. Uh, he, who, he or she with the most flexibility wins. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's one of my favorite little quotes from him. I have several, but that's that's one of my favorite ones. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I've been quoting him a lot, especially since his passing. You know, his whole thing about uh, about being right. Mm-hmm. You know, and the whole black and white issue of it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Because it's a huge one in our culture and society. The need to be right, which is just ego and pride. Right. I know. I keep saying, where's all the gray? Yeah. What, what, what is with all of this polarity and, yeah, and exactly. divisiveness and black and white? What, what happened to all the gray, the gray scale? That's right. And also, you know, it, it's also another way to look at it is <laughs> that we have these two opposites, you know, mm-hmm. where we have uh, being right is actually being wrong and being wrong sometimes is being right mm. because one of the things that happens when we make mistakes we actually learn from our mistakes yes. and so if we were always right we wouldn't learn anything Buckminster Fuller said that so clearly mm-hmm. that we learn more from our mistakes than we do from being right that and is it's so, so true. true yes <laughs> it's so, so true. true yes and it's the same thing about failures and and uh, regressing, regressing, mm-hmm. like many people have lost their wealth or they've lost their job or they've lost their lover, their partner, their wife, their husband. They've lost their children. They've lost, you know, their teacher or they've lost their identity or they've lost everything they've managed to save up to. But those are the moments it's hardest to see in those moments. Mm-hmm that we learn the most, we grow the most, and it opens up new things to us that weren't there before. And so the greatest losses can be the greatest gains. Mm -hmm. But of course, we don't see at the moment, we have to remember, oh, my God, there's a silver lining in this. I just don't know where it is and when it's going to appear. And you know, it's often hard to see the gift. It's hard to see the gift in the moment. But Mm -hmm. with time, we do. Mm -hmm. With time, we'd see the the gift. Yes. Oh, thank you. This has been 
so profound once again. And uh, I just, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jenny. Thank I you. really appreciate you having me. Well, thank you. Uh, take care, and we will reconnect again soon. I'd love to you have you. Too. I'd love to have you on again, actually. Thank you. I'd love to be on. Thank you very much, and I thank the listeners for listening. <laughs> Great. <laughs> take care. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Gempo Roshi, for sharing your wisdom and knowledge. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen, download episodes, and sign up for the Real Janine bi-weekly newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and of course, there's always a healthy recipe. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine podcast, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Do you know people who would benefit from my conversation with Genpro Roshi? I know you do. This has been very profound. So please, please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.